0: Well, everything is low tech today. You've got your low tech PowerPoint in front of you to sing by, and I'm having to record with a portable recorder here because we don't have the setup back there. But that's all right. It's kind of neat. You know, I uh, I want to just really encourage you. I know I don't I don't I don't ever guilt you into doing anything. Well, maybe not often, anyway. But. Uh, I really would like for you to be back tonight, if you could, uh, as we kind of have our last service in this place. We're going to talk about stones of memory. And some of you have been sending stones in, and I've got those, and you're going to see those start appearing soon. Uh, But I I would love to just be able to have some sharing time tonight. Uh, I've got some things I want to share, and I'd love to give you an opportunity to do the same thing. So, uh, let me just... Beg you? Can I beg? Do I need to get on my knee? Uh, Come back tonight for this last service here. I I think you'll be glad that you did, if you do. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 2 and verse 23. And our text today is going to go through uh, through all the second chapter and into the third chapter as we start talking about our Lord's encounter with Nicodemus. We certainly want to exhaust that this week, and we'll either be back to it next week, or we'll be back to it in a couple of weeks, however the Lord leads in that direction. But as we think about this, it's one of the most common, commonly known uh, encounters in all the Bible. Uh, most people can talk about, Jesus encountering Nicodemus and what he said and, and, and even uh, you know John 3.16 is probably the most well-known verse in all the Bible by believers and unbelievers alike. I mean, this is a passage that is very well known but many times not very well understood and, and applied in a proper way in, in people's lives and understanding sometimes. It's a very important passage. It's important because it shows the radical nature of the gospel. Uh, Jesus is showing here that the gospel is not just something that is to be casually believed. It's not something that's just to be casually looked at. But it's something that when a person really believes, truly believes the gospel, makes a radical change in that individual's life. So much so that he calls it born again. Being born again. You know, in our country, that was not such a well-known term until the 1970s. I mean, it was known in churches, and more conservative churches talked about it perhaps a lot, but, but in our culture, it was not really a, a well-known term. And, and then Chuck Colson got caught in the Watergate. Situation, And he was sent off to prison and, and sentenced there. In prison, came to know the Lord and was discipled by a friend of mine, uh, R.C. Sproul. And, and when he came out of prison, he wrote a book about all his experiences and he titled it Born Again. Then in 1976, Jimmy Carter was elected President of the United States. And the thing he talked about was that he was a born-again believer and a and, uh, born-again Christian. And, and that idea of born-again began to be uh, bandied about in the news and in the media. And most people didn't have a clue what it meant, but they knew that, that Chuck Colson and, and now Jimmy Carter both talked about this idea of being born-again. And, and then you would find, in sometimes in media articles, that someone would say, well, this athlete was kind of good, and then he kind of went into a, a slump or something, but he's been born again as an athlete. Didn't understand a clue about what Colson or Carter meant by it at all, but they, they got this idea, well, this sounds good, born again. They've come back from the dead, if you will, uh, in their career. When Jesus confronts Nicodemus, his greatest concern is that we understand the radical nature and the importance of this concept in the gospel. Hear what John records for us in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23 and on into chapter 3. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name observing his signs which he was doing, that is the miracles, those signs, indicating that all we've heard so far about a miracle is the miracle at Cana, the changing the water into wine we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But John indicates here that people were believing in his name because of the signs, not one sign. Evidently there are a lot of miracles that Jesus is doing that John does not record. And rightly so. He picked seven to show us the the authority and the power and the uh, the greatness of Christ, the the deity of Christ. But, But he's doing a lot of signs. And they were believing in his name, John says, observing these signs. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, indicating he was a part of the Sanhedrin, sort of on the same level what we would consider the synod in our country today, I would suppose. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. We'll stop there at verse 15. and probably won't cover all of that today as we think about what John is telling us and what Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus. First of all, those last three verses of chapter 2 are critical to understand. And they're kind of confusing to some people. Because they look at it and they say, Now he was in Jerusalem, he was at the Passover, he was during the feast, and many believed in his name. They saw his signs, they saw these miracles, they saw these wonders that he was performing, and and they said, there's something special about this one. Nicodemus even says when he comes, no one can do the things you're doing unless God has sent him. Nobody can do the kind of things you're doing, these signs that you're doing, unless you've come from God. We know that there's some kind of specialness about your life and about your ministry. Now he said, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. We know that you're a special kind of prophet. We know there's something unique about him. But Nicodemus at this point has not in any way testified or or believed that he is the Messiah. That he is the, the one that is from God, the God-man, God taking on flesh and, and becoming incarnate among us. Nicodemus is giving no indication now that he believes here is the Messiah, we've found the Messiah. But he does recognize because of these miracles that there's something special and something unique, as do many people in verse 23. But the, one of the most difficult passages for a lot of people is verse 24. Because John tells us that even though many saw His signs, many believed in His name, seeing those signs, but he says, but Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them. Because He knew all men. He knew the hearts of all men. He knew what was really there. He knew that there were some who followed Him because they... They were moved by the miracles. There were some who followed Him because they were wowed by what they saw Him doing in this particular place. There were some who said, you know, we, we, we just can't believe this. We, we like what we see. We like the excitement that surrounds the miracles. And, and so we believe in this name of this one Jesus. But the indication goes deeper that even though they believed in His name, there was something not right There was something not fully there. So much so that Jesus didn't entrust Himself to them, did not fully reveal to them who He was, did not fully show Himself to them, because He knew that at best they were temporary disciples. That they did not have a full change of life. They did not have a full understanding of His mission. They did not fully commit themselves to Him. But rather they simply saw Him and said there's something unique about Him. He speaks like no other teacher speaks and we're going to listen to Him. And they did just that, but said he, he didn't need anybody to tell what men were believing because he knew what was in a man. That reminds me a lot of what John said later, and I think John was probably thinking of this somewhat, when he wrote in his epistle in, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, when they were, some of those early believers were struggling with the fact that there were men and women who had come to church, had gotten involved in the local church, who had said, we believe in Jesus, we believe Jesus is the Christ, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, we believe there's something unique about Him. And they were all excited about this one Jesus, but then at some point they turned their back on it and they walked away. And, and they were struggling in, in that early church, saying, well, did they, did they come to Christ for salvation and then lose that salvation? Did Christ turn His back on them? Did Christ throw them out even though they had faith and He would not receive them anymore? And in John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John answers that question. He simply says, listen, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that, they, that it would be shown that they are all are not of us. Now, John's wording there in the more literal translation that, that New American Standard uses is, is somewhat cumbersome. In some ways. But John says, listen, the sign of one not being in Christ, the sign of one not being really accepted by Christ on the basis of a false profession is that they don't last. They don't stay. They, they, they fall away, they drop out, they look real strong. Man, have you known people like that? who said, oh man, I believe in Jesus. They have an emotional experience and everything is just as high as a kite and they can't can't be at church enough. They're there Sunday morning, Sunday night, in Sunday school and Wednesday night Bible study. They're, they're, They're there to do stuff. And then all of a sudden, poof, they're gone. And they haven't gone somewhere else. They've just gone. And John says, understand this, if a person's faith doesn't persist, if they go out from us and turn their back on Christ, it's not that they were disciples and then lost their discipleship or lost their salvation. It's that It just proves they never really were of us. Uh, They never really were part of us. They're, They're like these disciples. They're like these people who followed in the second chapter of John, and they believed in His name in some kind of superficial way. But Christ never entrusted them the truth of the gospel. Because they really were not fully committed to who he is, Listen, that ought to be a that ought to be a challenge to all of us I believe that John Jesus is going to talk about and John's going to record for us that uh, those who really believe he gives eternal life and eternal life is just that eternal oh it, it never ends, but there are those who will follow because there's something in it for them you know they we'll see that later in the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, people followed after Him in droves because their bellies were filled. And they didn't have to work for it. And they didn't have to provide their own food. Jesus comes along and there's 5,000 people there and this little boy's got two fishes and five loaves of bread. And, and He says, listen, uh, I'll feed you. And He feeds them with just that little bit. And there's 12 baskets left over. that they and, and I mean, people say, man, now that's the guy to follow. We'll never have to work again and we'll eat pretty good. They never really believed in Him. They believed in what He could do. They believed in what He could give them. You see, that's where so many times our evangelism methods are so weak. We, we think they're so powerful. If you come to Jesus, you'll have joy, peace, happiness. You'll never know the problem in the world. I mean, I've heard evangelism presentations like that. Folks, there are some problems I didn't have until I came to Christ. There some problems I didn't have until I made a commitment with all my heart that I would only proclaim the truth of God's Word, even if it wasn't popular. I mean, there were some problems that rose up because of that. You, some of you can testify to that, I mean, so you understand what I'm saying. But, but the point I'm saying is, that we, don't, we don't say come follow Jesus because what you can get. You come follow Jesus because of who He is. You come follow Jesus because of His person. Because of His work. Yes, He gives forgiveness. He gives cleansing. He gives salvation. He gives redemption. He gives all those things. But folks, sometimes we make it sound like, man, we're as bad as the health and wealth uh, profiteers who say, you know, you come and and you'll just be happy, you'll be healthy, you'll be rich. And that's not always true. Some of the godliest people I know are scraping by on nothing. But they're satisfied in Christ. Because they don't expect, they didn't come to Christ for all the material things He could give them. They've come to Christ because of who He is, what His work on the cross is, and what genuine faith really is. So there's some who'll come, and there'll some who'll leave. There are many who'll stay, and those are the ones we'll find out later in this gospel that. Not only do they trust in his name, but Jesus entrusts himself to them. We'll talk about that in depth later on. But it says in, in chapter 3 then that, that this guy Nicodemus comes. It says Nicodemus was a, was a ruler of the Jews, a man of the Pharisees. Not all Pharisees were rulers of the Jews. Not all Pharisees were a part of the Sanhedrin. But evidently Nicodemus was, John says. He, was, he had authority, he had power. And he comes to Jesus. Now, a lot of people have made a lot of the point that he came by night to Jesus. You know, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him. A lot of said, you know, he came because he was fearful. Or he came because he was ashamed. Uh, he came because he didn't want to be seen with Jesus. and uh, All these kind of things. That may be true. I don't know. It could be he came because that's when the crowds weren't pressing in and he could sit down and talk with him. He could have a conversation with him. Now during the day, the, these who were just hanger ons who were wanting to see the signs, they were crowding in. And at night now, the crowds were gone. He could come and have a conversation with Jesus. I don't know. I don't know why He came at night. John doesn't go into a lot of detail as to why He came at night. He just says He did. He came at night and He said, Rabbi, He acknowledged He was a teacher. We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's quite a recognition. Again, it's short of saying we know you're the Messiah. We know you're the one who's come to to bring salvation to all your people. We we know that you are the one that God has sent, not as just a prophet, not as just a teacher, but the one who has come to to do a special work of redemption, a special work of sacrifice, that none of these sacrifices we offer could ever accomplish. He He didn't go that far. Now, there's indication later on, that Nicodemus became a believer. Uh, there's, there's the situation at the, at the cross and the burial where Nicodemus with Joseph of Arimathea takes him down and, and helps put him in the grave. There, there's other indications that at one point later on this gospel, we'll see that when the, when the Sanhedrin are trying to, trying to question Jesus and trying to, uh, trying to attack him, trying to put an end to his ministry basically, that Nicodemus speaks up on his behalf. Uh, so there, there seems to be through the Gospel of John, Nicodemus popping in every now and then, and a progression of his understanding, and, and hopefully, and I believe a progression of his faith. But at this point, he's just, he's just asking some questions. I know you're a teacher, and I know you've come from God, because nobody could do the things that you're doing unless God was with him. And Jesus accepted that. And in verse 3, He gives the most profound statement and then amplifies upon it that you'll ever hear. Jesus says, truly, truly. If you're looking at King James Version, it doesn't say truly, truly. It says, verily, verily. If you're looking at another modern translation, it might say, now hear this. (laughs) Don't miss this. If you don't hear anything else I say... Don't miss what I'm about to say. That's what truly, truly, verily, verily means. It's a a way that they spoke in that day to to really get your attention. Uh, We do sort of things like that. We'll say, now listen up. We say, now listen up. Uh, You you know, somebody's going to say something they really don't want you to miss, right? Now listen to this. I'm not going to say this twice. You know, number of things. But Jesus said it twice. Truly, truly. verily. Verily. Absolutely, absolutely, listen to what I'm about to say. And he simply says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not only can he not enter into it, not only can he not become a part of it, but he can't even see it unless he's been born again. Unless there's a sovereign work of grace upon their life, unless something happens that changes their heart, changes their their bent toward evil, changes their their selfishness, changes their self-centeredness, unless there's something that changes this fleshly birth that we have and makes it a spiritual birth, born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Much less enter into it. Nicodemus was puzzled and he said, are you saying, are you really saying that that a man has to, even old like I am, has to enter his mother's womb again? He can't do that, can he? I mean, that, that, that's. can you hear the confusion in Nicodemus's question there? Yeah, He said, Jesus doesn't make sense. We may be born again. I mean, this was not a concept that Judaism was familiar with. So it's not something that, that, that Judaism spoke about every day. But Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can not enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, what, what do you mean? Help me out here. So Jesus amplifies on it a bit and says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water... And of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Born of water, born of the Spirit. Uh, again, there, that, that is one of those things that, that people question and, and batting around and, and wonder about. Uh, some say born of water is baptism. Unless you're bapti- baptized and then born of the Spirit, you can't, you can't, be, uh, you can't be born again. And, and there's some groups that will, say, will use that verse to say, there it is, there's proof. Baptism is a requirement for salvation. If you're not born of water, baptized, born of the Spirit, regenerated, then you cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. You can't be born again. But to say to Nicodemus, unless you're baptized uh, in a Christian understanding of baptism, would have made no sense to him any more than being born again. Others have said, well, he's talking about physical birth. Uh, at birth, there is the water. There is the break in the amnio fluid, and, and at birth, one experiences a water birth, if you will. And, and then that's the natural birth. That's a human birth. And then later, there is a spiritual birth. And it's that spiritual birth that causes you to be born again. You're born naturally, humanly, and then you're born again by the Spirit. And, and I can see some legitimacy in that. But he's being redundant if that's the case, because a little later on he's going to say that which born of the flesh is flesh, and that born of the spirit is spirit. Whether he's talking about the same thing at both times, I don't know. I I think because he's talking to Nicodemus, because he's talking to a ruler of the Jews, because he's talking to a Pharisee, well versed in the scripture, I personally think Jesus kind of had in mind Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, this is what Ezekiel says. Quoting God, declares the Lord God, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes. And you will be careful to observe My ordinances. That's about as close to an Old Testament discussion of you must be born again that you'll ever find. And, And there, God says to them, there's this water, there's this cleansing that I will do, which will cleanse the external. It will cleanse you from your filthiness. It will cleanse you from your idols. It will take away all of the external things that are against me. And then I will do a spiritual birth with you and you will be born again. You'll be born in the Spirit. I'll put my Spirit within you. I will give you a new heart. Take out the stony heart. Put in the fleshly heart. I will make you come alive to me as you put away your idols. As the idols are stripped away, washed away, cleansed away along with all filthiness. I have a feeling that when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, that's what he was thinking about. That's what Nicodemus was thinking about. This water and the the Spirit birth, being born of water and born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. But he goes on and amplifies it to talk about flesh and flesh and Spirit and Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Everybody in this room right now, every single one of you, I can say this unequivocally. We say this without any hesitation, without any doubt. Everybody in here is born of the flesh. Because you're sitting there, and you're breathing, and you're people. You're human beings. That's all it it takes to prove that you're born of the flesh. Okay? you have been born of the flesh. To be born of the Spirit is something totally different though. To be born of the Spirit is to have God give you his Spirit. To have God give you Himself. To do as Jesus didn't do with a lot of these people. It's to have Christ entrust Himself to you. Not just your trust. Your trust is important. And your trust is vital. And your trust must be real in the Christ of Scripture. Not the Christ of America. But the Christ of Scripture. And to be able to say, I trust in you as you present yourself, prophet, priest, king. I trust in you as the sacrificial savior, the sacrificial substitute. I trust in you as the only one who can bring about a new life to me. That's what it means to entrust yourself to Jesus. And when you trust that way, He has entrusted Himself to you to let you see that need. As you did with Lydia we did with Lydia sitting there on the riverbank with the apostle Paul, when Paul preached and says of Lydia, said, And God opened her heart and opened her eyes and she believed. So that means to be born again. It's to have blind eyes toward the truth of Christ. To have a hard heart toward the truth of Christ. But to have your heart open, your eyes open, and you see your need for a Savior. And you see that Christ is the only Savior. And you see that you are a sinner. And you see that Christ is the only hope for your sin. And for that to be dealt with. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So don't be amazed when I say to you, you must be born again. And then one of my favorite verses in all the Scripture, and I'll, I'm going to come back to this in a week or two, I'm sure, because it's so phenomenal. I, I'll tell you about a sermon I preached on this one time. It probably was not great exegesis, but it was a great sermon. Uh, that was supposed to be funny. Uh, verse 8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, And you hear the sound of it. But you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Greek and Hebrew both, which are the two languages of the Scripture primarily. Hebrew of the Old Testament, Greek of the New Testament. Both languages have one word that is translated by context either wind or Spirit. Sometimes breath. But in this text, wind and spirit are the, the same word. And, and, and Jesus starts out by saying, the wind blows wherever it wishes. It goes where, you, you, don't, you don't determine where the wind blows. Uh, we've had some windy days of late. And, and I couldn't go outside and say to the wind, wind, go over there. Blow in another part of the county. I can't do that. The wind blows where it wants to. I can stand out and yell at it all day. I can say, wind, stop. Then doesn't listen to me. Now, Jesus could do that, but I can't. The wind goes wherever it wants to. You know where it comes from. There's no, there, there's no way to see it coming. You're standing in a completely calm area, and, and you think everything's fine, and all of a sudden a wind comes along and, and just blows where it wants to. And you know where it goes. All of a sudden it's gone. And Jesus uses that as an illustration to say that's the way it is with the Spirit. The Spirit of God does what he desires to do. He moves where he wants to move. He, he he, he, He seeks to show himself powerful and glory, but you can't figure him out humanly speaking, like we like to figure things out. The sermon I preached one time I entitled I entitled it Pull in Your Oars and Put Up a Sail. Uh, and my point was that a lot of times in our Christian life, we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to determine the speed and we're trying to determine the direction by our, rowing our Christian life, you know. And we're rowing as hard as we can. And, and, and we're trying to make the determination. And if we want to turn one way, we'll row with one oar. If we want to turn another, we'll row that. But we just keep rowing. We keep trying. We keep, we keep trying to determine the path. God's Word indicates, as believers, we ought to pull in those oars and just put up a sail and be carried where the Spirit wants to carry us. You know, I think one of the biggest temptations we're going to have... I'm going to chase a rabbit here. Excuse me a minute. I think one of the biggest temptations we're going to have when we move to Oakleaf Lane is we're going to try to row. We're gonna to try to make it happen. We're gonna say, boy, look what we've got. Let's just let's let's plan this out to the nth degree. Let's let let's let's do this and let's do that and, and we'll make the determination. That will be a disaster. I think we still just have to depend on where the spirit's gonna blow. Red and I were talking, coming to church this morning, and or maybe it was last night. They're all running together this week. Probably will more next week. We were talking to the last night or this morning, and we were we were just talking about how what has made us so strong. Part of it's because we've started with nothing. And and God provided in unusual ways that we could never have planned. And and, and we just came and said, We're trusting you, Lord. Do what you want to do, and we want to just be obedient. In other words, we want to have a sail up and we want to let you blow us where you want us to blow us and do what you... He's doing that over Oakley Flame. He has given us that as a grace gift that we didn't deserve and we didn't earn, and it's his spirit that is giving us that. But folks, we cannot now say, Whew, we've arrived, we can do it now. Can't do that. We we were talking about how how strong our young people are. How I, I, I'm I'm just impressed when I taught with some of our youth. At their commitment to Christ, at their depth of understanding of, of God's providence and God's moving. And and you know, really part of that's because they've kind of been through the fire. I mean Todd's a good teacher, but there's other factors too. You know, they they've been they had to they had to suffer a little. They moved about, and they were kind of vagabond for the first few months. On Wednesday nights, for their Bible studies and fellowship, and then they, then they met in total rehab, and then they, then they we rented a place across the street, and so they've kind of moved around, and they've kind of adapted, and, and, and as, as young people can do better than some of us can, although we've done well at adapting, I think, in a lot of ways. They had to suffer. They they had to. They had to face a little bit of questioning. And they had to come to a point of standing up for their faith. And that made them strong. I hope the next generation, the children that are coming up, I know they'll be taught well. But I wonder if they're going to have it so nice that they will almost enter in an entitlement mentality. Oh, this is what I've got. I deserve this. This is, this is what I should always have in every area of life. If that's the case, we've missed it completely. Our message must stay on target. Our focus must stay on target. Our focus must be, Lord, You're the Spirit. You're the wind. We are born of You. You have given us life. We have been born again, born from above, born anew. We are Yours Take us where you want us to go. And Lord, keep our focus on you. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, they say, Nicodemus, there's a there's a different way you've got to look at things. Being religious is not enough. It's just not. Man, Nicodemus was as religious as you ever want to be. Just going to church every Sunday, never missing, is not enough. Having a godly heritage is not enough. Nicodemus had religious parents, no doubt. Religious friends. Religious co-workers. Religious neighbors. I mean, they were very religious. But Jesus saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, being religious is not enough. Probably Nicodemus was a lot like the Apostle Paul said he was in Philippians chapter three. Nobody could point at Nicodemus and say, you know, I know some sin in that man's life, and he's a phony. Nicodemus was not a phony. He he sought to live what he what he professed within his religion. He 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 was he was a sinner, but, but boy he hid it well, I'm sure. Some of us hide it well. Oh, we're just very holy all the time. Jesus said it's not good enough to have a religious heritage. It's not good enough to be religious. It's not good enough to have a good family heritage. You must be born again. Notice Jesus didn't say, of course the word wasn't in use in Jesus' time, but He didn't say, and He wouldn't say it today, you must be a born again Christian. I'm always amazed when I hear people say, I'm a born again Christian. I want to say, why are you being redundant? Why are you saying the same thing twice? Oh, well, I'm not like some Christians. I'm a born-again Christian. No, no, you're not a Christian. You're not born again. That's what Jesus says. Oh, but I know people who don't want to say they're born again. They just say they're Christian. They've always been a Christian. There is no Christian by birth. There is no Christian by living in the Bible Belt. There is no being a Christian because mom and dad were Christians. There is no being a Christian because you go to church. I when I was in college, first thing I ever—I think the first time I ever heard Josh McDowell speak—and this was really funny then, it won't be now. But he said, "Going to church no more makes go, going to sitting in church no more makes you a Christian than sitting in a garage makes you a car." So it was a lot funnier, in nineteen sixty-nine or seventy. <laughs> But that's the truth. The only thing that makes you a Christian is being born again. Believing in Christ. Believing in who He is. Believing in the work that He has done. And having the Spirit of God change you from the inside out. Washing away the idols. Washing away the filthiness. And changing your heart. It's a work of the Spirit. Now Nicodemus is going to ask, and we're going to stop here. We're going to answer this question. How can these things be? There are a lot of people look at that and say, I don't understand what this born-again stuff means. It means trusting Christ. It means experiencing the grace of God in your life and the changing power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It means coming to Him and saying, Lord, I don't have anything to bring. As the old hymn says, all I have is my sin to bring to You. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Your cross I cling. Simply to You do I cling. Lord, I can't say I deserve it because of this or I deserve it because of that. I've earned my way in Your kingdom. Lord, I don't have anything. But I cling to You. I trust in You. I faith You. And nothing else. And even as we, as we prayed in the, the Puritan prayer, hand me that down there, Scott, right there. Quickly. That's quick. Good. <laughs> Let sinners be brought to you for your dear name's sake. Let people be saved to your glory. You see, when you're saved, when you come to Christ, it's to the glory of God. To the praise of His holy name. You say, but we get something out of it. We do get something out of it. But what we get out of it is secondary to glorifying Him and letting His power be seen in His work in a person's life. May our prayer be, Lord, receive the glory from us, in us, and through us. Receive the glory. Let's pray. Father, your gospel is radical. For it makes us new creatures, it makes us new persons. It changes us from just being a flesh to being born of the Spirit. It gives us life that is eternal. And it gives us life that is different here and now. Lord. Deliver us from religion. Deliver us from inherited Christianity that is no Christianity at all. Lord, birth us into your kingdom if we're not already. By your Spirit, do your work in our lives. For some of us, Lord, it's a a work of renewal. A work of revival. A work of reformation to Your truth. But Father, do Your work in Your way right now. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment is receive the glory. Let's stand together and sing together.